I would say is one of my top interests and based on my explorations uh, different kind uh, type of ways and roads how people uh, emerge into this journey is either kind of a techie people who love uh, things like uh, uh, data science artificial intelligence hardware um, or it's people who face some kind of a, a personal issues or related to the topic of a, some developmental issues, neurodiversity. How you emerged uh, in topic of a social robotics? Um, I definitely came at it from the technology side. Um, my uh, background is, you know, heavy technology. Um, my uh, my first degree was uh, uh, cognitive and computational neuroscience. And then my next was uh, mechanical engineering. Uh, and my kind of focus and love was robots. But I also have an even stranger background. I started working in a genetics lab during the Human Genome Project in the early 2000s, right you know, the last year and a half of that project. And then at 15 was doing uh, nanomaterials uh, development at another uh, research lab at the UT Dallas uh, Nanotech Institute and so I've always loved building stuff and I've always loved um, you know understanding kind of how the brain works and things like that and that's really kind of what brought me to uh, this really you know narrow and very strange type of robots. Uh, let's talk about uh, the problem of a neurodiversity of inclusive ecosystems. For instance, usually uh, when I uh, present the problem of inclusion, why is important, I say, guys, do you know that there is a, around 80% of people with autism who are not able to get full-time employment because we're not able to communicate properly? Uh, based on your exploration, what type of a numbers, stats do you usually demonstrate to pick people's attention and actually uh, demonstrate why it's so important to build social robots and make our ecosystem inclusive? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the U.S., the, the stats I'm aware of are the kind of unemployed or underemployed rate for people with autism specifically is around 92%. So it's, you know, it's, it's really high. And, um, you know, in addition to uh, the, the type of technology we develop to help people with autism and help children with autism learn, you know, communication skills, learn how to um, effectively process information, especially emotional information, body language, things like that coming from other people. Uh, we also employ a number of people at RoboKind who are on the autism spectrum as well. And so you know, 
you know, we, we see, you know, I've heard firsthand from them difficulties with, um, you know, employment in the past and things like that and challenges it's posed. We also uh, do internships pretty frequently uh, with high school students who are on the autism spectrum. And that has ranged from everything from, you know, some difficulty with communication and, you know, some minor behavioral things and stuff like that, all the way to completely nonverbal you know, don't speak uh, types of people. And what we found is, you know, both with our own technology and just other available technologies, we've been able to support individuals like that. And it's not a, it's not a charity thing. It's we get amazing work out of them and uh, they contribute significantly to what we're doing because they provide a very different viewpoint. You know, I mean, neurodiversity in an organization is as important as other types of diversity. You need different, different viewpoints, different minds, different world experiences. Otherwise, if you just have a homogenous organization, then it's very easy to fall into groupthink. And so I've seen the same benefits from, you know, having people on our team who are autistic as I have, you know, all, all other types of diversity. And obviously, since autism is one of our biggest focuses as a company, we're, you know, potentially uniquely suited, especially as a small company, to accommodate for that because um, we want that feedback. We need it. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. There's so much technology out there. I mean, back to that uh, intern we had who was completely nonverbal, um, you know, he, he, he caught bugs in our software and our content that had been there for years that we hadn't caught, our customers hadn't caught, things like that. And when you know we were on slack he was fine communicating it just you just couldn't have a face-to-face conversation and you didn't go out to lunch together but at the end of the day who cares i mean you were still able to have you know great interactions he was a great kid um you just have to accommodate and support uh effectively and you get just you know huge huge returns it's just i can't emphasize that enough. So I firstly explored uh, Robokine, then your main model was Milo. Currently, you expanded your work, you have a jet, Rob own. What was your initial MVP in kind of the first point of a problem in your main audience you tried to appeal? Yeah, so our first our first MVP robots um, were uh, Zeno and Alice, and they were bigger, they were more expensive, and they were a little, uh, they, they were much less durable. They weren't kind of purpose built to be in the classroom and work for like years at a time. Um, and but we were able to use those to test out a lot of ideas, develop our curriculum and things like that, because they were much faster robots to develop and to build out. And so, um, you know, as as we've kind of the shift from the Zeno and Alice robots to Milo um, really was a shift of manufacturability and durability and you know going from a robot that was kind of built for research both internally and externally working with universities and stuff like that to a real product 
and then um, and so you know we we really launched our autism and now our computer science curriculums on Milo and as you know, we've grown as a company and we've grown our volumes and I've had the ability to expand the characters because really, you know, Milo, Jet and Robin are kind of, they're the same robot, just with different different appearances. The underlying hardware is the same. Um, but really the reason those other characters exist is for, for diversity um, because um, it's important for kids when you're when you're training social skills when you're teaching anything um and especially if it looks as human as our characters do to have something that's representative to have something that's close to them so they don't feel like they're playing with something that's outlandish or out of reach but something that you know is really uh representative of them and so you know our goal as we grow and our volumes increase is to continue to introduce additional characters with different skin tones genders non-gendered everything uh, to really make it possible for our robots to be representative of the kids we're working with and the type of people we want to help uh, you serve uh, to many different audiences like schools, agencies, researchers, educators. What's your uh, key audience? Is more uh, so you 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 mostly B two B or B two C companies. So you're more like about families and educators, or you're more like about uh, organization or both. It's it's kind of a weird blend because most of our customers are public schools, and so the result of that is we're kind of B to G, B to B ish, and in terms of our sales, right? But in terms of who we serve, the end user, and this is where selling to public schools and selling to government can be kind of strange and kind of a weird blend. You know, we're we're selling to the schools, our end users are the teachers and ultimately really the students in the classroom is the majority. And then we also sell to some therapy organizations and private therapists and occasionally some individuals as well as university research. But 98% of uh, what we do is work with schools. And so ultimately we're working with children in the classroom, we're working with teachers, but the administrators are the people making the decisions on funding and sales. But um, so we, we try to make sure we have a little bit of something for everyone in terms of data and reports. But what we care about most is helping the helping the kids in the classroom and helping the teachers who serve those kids um, learn not just how to use our product, but as much as possible about autism, about whatever we're helping them teach. So we provide the robots, the software, the curriculum, training for teachers, and then additional services that go beyond our kind of core product so that teachers have a better understanding and are more up to date on what are the best evidence-based practices, how do you most effectively work with your students with or without our product so that they can provide the most help and create the most benefit because at the end of the day, the kids we're helping are what matter. Uh, you mentioned that you uh, provide curriculums. Um, from this perspective, uh, do you position yourself more like a hardware and robotics developer or like a learning company in the long-term perspective? And how do you yeah. plan to grow uh, your focus? 
So I would say we're we're a learning company. Um, when we started it, when I started Robokind, I thought we were a technology company and I thought we were a robotics company. But um, as as we've grown and developed, we're you know very clearly a learning company. What we care about are the end results of the students we work with. The technology facilitates that. It doesn't, um, you know, it it's not the the most important part of what we do even though it's the way we deliver that learning and so you know we're as at to and to that point as we've you know as kind of covid has come into the world and the way all of us live and work and learn is changing we're working hard to very quickly make sure that our curriculum is deliverable in other ways using, you know, iPad apps and web-based things and videos and 3D simulations of the robot and things like that because we want to make sure that even if our, our customers, if our students don't have access to the physical hardware, that they're still able to learn. So to that end, that's kind of you know, even though my background is robotics and um, that's kind of where how I got into this, um, we're definitely an education company first. You know, we do still provide robots and API access to like universities for other types of research and other types of work, but that's become such a minor part of what we do. It tends to be more exploratory and sometimes just fun projects for me and my other engineers to have something else that we can help out with. Uh, you mentioned what your initial models uh, were bigger, uh, not, not so adaptive, not so close to reality. You spent uh, tons of time in robotics field. Which the key difference you see in the whole social robotics market in terms of the key features and functionality? How is different, for instance, if we pick uh, 2011 or like uh, 10 years ago and current yeah. days? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I can definitely speak to that. So before I started Robokind, I was actually the engineering director for Hanson Robotics. And so while I wasn't involved with the Sophia robot, which, you know, is kind of their most prominent robot now, I was involved with several other robots, um, you know, between 2008 and 2011. Um, and, you know, those were larger human scale robots, humanoids. Um, and we had conversational engines and we had, um, you know, all this interaction and express expressivity and things like that. But everything we did at the time, it, you know, we had to develop it ourselves. It was, you know, a lot of work, both in terms of, you know, not just the hardware, but also the coding and modeling and all, you know, visual servoing and, you know, all this stuff and we had to cobble together pieces of all this stuff and now as ai's exploded and become more accessible it become, it's become so much faster to iterate so much faster to develop product and so you know create more naturalistic interaction and you and cheaper too you don't have to develop it yourself you know very frankly stuff we did in you know 2011 um, that took a lot of work and hacking weird stuff together and parsing weird data. Now you can go and you can grab, you know, an Amazon 
you know, service, you know, Alexa service and a bot and just kind of develop all of that in, you know, minutes to days and have it up and running. And same thing with the computer vision and, you know, person recognition and emotion recognition and all this stuff. Now, you know, it used to take, you know, experienced specialized senior developers to do that. And now, very frankly, I can prototype a lot of stuff either myself or with someone a few months out of a coding boot camp because it's become so much more accessible. And I mean, that's exciting, not just for us, that's exciting for everyone. You can do so much so quickly. And, you know, what I've always said uh, in terms of the way I tend to think about things, while I've done some things historically that are kind of core development and very like deep development of some systems like this, um, it's a lot more fun to grab a bunch of these available off the shelf systems and then cobble them together in a brand new way that no one ever has before and invent at a higher level that, you know, where you're playing with new types of interaction and multi-sensory types of things and stuff like that instead of, you know, spending months and months and months on just, uh, you know, uh, an audio localization algorithm or something like that. So that's one of the ways that it's just gotten significantly easier. And then on the hardware side, frankly, you know, 3D printing has gotten so much cheaper and more available. You know, I was using, you know, 3D printers that were $80,000, a few hundred thousand dollars, and the stuff I can buy and have delivered, you know, next day on Amazon for 500 bucks is frankly just as good now. And I can, instead of having one, I can have 20 of them if I need it. And it really isn't a big deal. And, you know, same thing, frankly, with like small machine, you know, CNC mills, um, servos, things like Raspberry Pis and other open source development boards have made uh, figuring out how to get the computing you need inside such a small robot has gotten so much easier because there's just so many dev boards. I mean, our first going back to those kind of Xeno and Alice robots, um, I mean, we, we had to take what was basically uh, I think it was like a five, $600 Intel Atom industrial controller board and figure out how to squeeze it into, you know, a cavity uh, in the chest of the robot and develop all this other stuff around it and add all this IO and all these other types of communications and sensors. And now, you know, with things like the Raspberry Pi, which we're not using yet, but we're thinking about for our next generation robots, um, you can, and frankly, all the various processors for uh, like Android phones and, you know, just mobile everything has made it faster, cheaper, and easier to just grab stuff and bring it in and, you know, develop much, much faster. And so it's just everything is faster and cheaper. And so if, if it's something you want to do, it's you you can do it just so much more easily and you don't need nearly as large a team and there's a lot more companies willing to support smaller startups who are trying to start things for the first time so i know this is a very long answer to this question but oh, i mean no, the no. reality it's brilliant, is yes. everything is easier than it was 10 years ago when it comes to this type of stuff which 
allows you to focus on the things you want to create that are unique instead of trying to create your own version of something that already exists. Um, and so that's one of those things when I'm talking to new entrepreneurs, you know, people fresh out of like school, like a graduate program where they're trying to take something they started as a master's thesis or a PhD dissertation and spin it into a company where you've been in a academic environment, especially where you're prided and rewarded on doing absolutely everything yourself is I say grab absolutely every service you can that's available that does close enough to what you need, build it in a way where it's easy to swap it out if something better comes along and focus on the things that make what you're doing unique. That's it. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, there is an opinion uh, that there is no the same autism. And even you, on your side, you use the term diverse learners because every case is very different. How is difficult to make robotics that fit different cases and which challenges do you face uh, in this work? Yeah, um, I think the way we think about that is we, we're always trying to improve and expand who we can serve, right? So the first generation of like our software and our curriculum was really designed on a one-size-fits-most type of goal that was our goal you know can we how wh how broad um a, a population can we fit and serve and provide value to and help and as we've grown and as we have more data on how people use our products and better research is available the opportunity to expand the definition of most in that one size fits most philosophy has gotten, you know, easier. It's not easy, but, you know, where you're incorporating, you know, besides our robots, you know, iPads and all kinds of, you know, other technologies and cloud services that can supplement what the other devices can do and, you know, changing kind of the frameworks we develop on and making sure when we're doing that, that we do our best to, um, you know, apply, you know, the, uh, the best accessibility standards as part of our frameworks. And, you know, it's never going to be perfect, but we can always strive to incorporate that one next thing that'll allow one more person to be included in using our products and, you know, hopefully, seeing progress and showing benefit because when we started we really thought we'd be able to help kind of in terms of autistic people the the group that was kind of you know needed you know verbal but had a lot of issues with um you know emotion recognition and communication and things like that and as we got into it both in terms of things we added, but also, frankly, our customers ignoring our recommendations and using it with a broader range, we were able to start seeing, oh, we're actually able to work with kids much younger than we thought we'd be able to, kids who are completely nonverbal, kids who have, you know, frequent meltdowns and some of them violent and stuff like that, and that we were able to work with a broader range of uh, people than we'd ever thought we'd be able to. And then as 
we've done that and as frankly our customers have been really brave and you know uh, tried it out with much broader ranges of kids in terms of age in terms of whatever you know difficulties they're dealing with we've been able to see where does it work where does it almost work and you know we can make adjustments and also how can we provide better feedback both real time and after the fact to you know be more supportive to help parents who aren't there when it's happening understand what's going on and it provide a more inclusive and supportive you know kind of ecosystem for these kids and that's really um it's i mean it's been inspiring because we just continue to see um, really interesting impacts. And, you know, we work with a population when we talk about, you know, diversity, autism isn't one thing. Autism, you know, they call it a spectrum for a reason. But the other thing I like to really call out is it's not a, it's not a unidimensional spectrum. It's, you know, it's, there's multiple, you know, there's multiple dimensions on that spectrum, which makes it much more complex in every individual truly unique um, in terms of what autism looks like for any one person. And so um, what we've just tried to do is, um, you know, accommodate for as much of that as possible, um, provide that support, talk not just to the teachers, but talk to the kids we're working with, um, you know, talk to, people with autism, because a lot of times I feel like they get left out of conversations about them. And so, um, you know, making sure that we're not, we're, we're using both the best evidence, but we're not focusing on the wrong things, you know. And I think a, a great example of that is eye contact. A lot of, historically, a lot of autism therapy has focused on kind of normative behavior versus helping an individual uh, learn to process information and use it effectively, right? I mean, so we don't at any point really focus on, oh, you need to make eye contact with someone. We've made, we've made sure that our curriculum doesn't do that because frankly, it's not important. What we do teach though is it is important to look at the face when you're trying to assess someone's emotional output right and that's a very different focus um it's not a look at someone's face or look them in the eyes because that's what normal people do and therefore that's what you should do it's a it's an approach of saying we're going to teach you a process some people under get this process innately they're born with it other people don't in terms of recognizing you know, a smile, you know, which is simplistic or oversimplified, but recognizing emotional expression. So let's let's teach. Here are the parts of the face. Here's how they move. And when the face moves to this configuration or through these sets of configurations, this is what that means. And now there's value there for the student. Right. We're not saying look at someone's face because it's um, you know, it's 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 what other people do we're saying here's a reason why you may want to look at the face occasionally and here's the value you'll receive for that and we found that that nets much more positive results and keeps kids wanting to continue learning with us um you know and in terms of the diversity and severities of different things you know i mean we have some students we work with who 
after one or two of you know one type of lesson how to say hi to someone as an example they go home and they say hi to their parents for the first time at you know 14 years old and they've been in therapy for a decade and that's incredible and you know they've been in they've been working on it and for some reason the robot and our software and our techniques got through to them immediately um also in my opinion uh just just as incredible is we have kids doing that same thing and it takes them three years and then they get it and you think about what the technology is able to do and how the technology is able to be patient frankly in ways that people have a very hard time with if you know just simply can't and you know it's incredible and it's a wonderful story to see that kid who does it in a day um but it's so much more i think rewarding for you know those those teachers those parents when that kid that it took the three years and these you know i'm thinking of real stories we've gotten feedback from from you know the 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 teachers we work with and the parents we work with um you know it's it especially in like a school setting you know as the teachers change and everything like that you know having this consistency that's able to track with them that's able to keep going and doesn't care how long it's been and how much time it takes whether it's three years of the same two lessons to get there or whether it's patiently waiting for two minutes for a student to respond because that's the amount of time they need to process the question and think through the responses i mean that's all what the technology allows in addition to being softer an easier intro less overwhelming um you know less threatening to some extent though i don't really like that word um but just you know a robot doesn't get tired a robot doesn't get frustrated that's what it comes down to uh, you mentioned uh, one very important word that assessment was a normative before, but, and I believe that the whole approach to inclusion was like uh, uh, we should uh, um, we need just some kind of a fitting, not not actually mm -hmm. performing, but if individuals is able to fit in some way, it's okay. Um, but I believe currently with technology, we try to achieve something much bigger is that uh, uh, individuals are actually able to perform and realize their potential uh, in a in, in very holistic way. Uh, based uh, uh, on your work, what was your the most interesting case when someone with autism spectrum uh, experienced some issues uh, on, on one of the parts of this spectrum, like uh, issues with uh, communication or uh, behavior, but after using of robotics and changing in learning process, they experience some uh, extremely significant benef uh, benefits, some progress in learning and uh, performance in life in general. Yeah. Um, I, I think you know, I, I've got a few examples um, that kind of range, you know, it, it, a lot of it depends on the individual starting point and where they, you know, may be able to get to. But I mean, I'll, I'll go back to like that uh, high school kid we had who was, you know, for a whole summer who was nonverbal. A lot of what he was doing was reviewing our curriculum. So he was, 
he was both learning from it as he was looking for problems with it, right? And so, I mean, I don't think um, his, you know, his teachers, his parents, anything like that understood, you know, how well he could communicate um, via, frankly, writing. Um, and, you know, by the end of that summer, he still wasn't talking to people verbally, face to face, but he was a lot more capable of expressing himself uh, using, you know, other communication technologies. He was much more comfortable, I think, you know, being in groups. And even if he, I mean, he would sit in on our morning, like software stand-up meetings and stuff like that, and would sometimes type responses on Slack, even though at the time they were in-person meetings. Um, and, you know, we also learned as part of that because we were able to get to know him those ways and he was able to, you know, start, I think as he started going through some of the um, the more advanced kind of social dynamics uh, lessons and stuff like that we had, he started understanding conversation better, basically, um, which aided in his communication and at by the end of the summer, I mean, he'd done tremendous work for us. And I think, you know, and he's going to be able to continue doing that. And very frankly, as, as terrible as, you know, all the, you know, the, the Corona stuff we're all dealing with right now is, I think, one benefit, um, you know, for, a, you know, I think people who don't want to work in an office, but also potentially for people with autism is it's really showing a lot of companies that there's a lot of different ways to communicate and that, you know, the, the technology, some of these companies that maybe weren't as equipped to go remote have had to adapt, adopt and adapt to using um, mean that people with everything from, you know, more more sub intense, you know, kind of social issues with within autism to just basic social anxiety and stuff like that can be very good members of like your teams of your workforce and they don't have to be there in person. They don't have to turn on the camera if they don't want to. They you know, don't even have to get on, you know, the voice chat. There's so many ways to communicate. There's so many ways to participate that so long as you're learning how to communicate in one of many ways that's effective to work with your teams, um, you can be a really productive, active member, and that makes hiring people with autism easier. I know a lot of big companies have hiring initiatives right now explicitly for autism. I know Microsoft has one. I know EY does. JP Morgan Chase uh, within their IT department uh, does. And, you know, all these big tech companies do. Um, and a big part of it that has always been how do you interview someone that doesn't communicate well right i mean that to some extent's an issue with a lot of software developers anyway who maybe you know a decent percentage are somewhere on the autism spectrum anyway whether they're diagnosed or not and um but i think that uh you know adapting learning how to adapt to other ways besides just talking about it, to understand what someone's skills are is 
Um, really all it takes for a company to learn how to hire someone with autism effectively. And for anyone who is autistic, um, just, you know, I mean, if you can type, frankly, you can probably communicate. And I know, and I'm harping on communication a lot. And the reality is, is that's the biggest, I mean, that's what our focus is. It's, you know, social emotion and emotional skills and that's largely about communication and the reason that's important is very simply if you're part of a team it doesn't matter if you do the best work in the world if no one knows about it and the people depending on you don't know it's done um, for them to take it to the next step or build on it or you know for them to acknowledge your contribution, just the way we're all wired as a species, um, it doesn't it doesn't help with progress. And so, just facilitating and supporting that is what's really important. And you know, the other the other part of that is both with our technology as well as just everything else. You know, we've made some tweaks to the way our office is set up when we were, um, you know, actually still all going to the office and stuff like that. And some of it's controlling lighting and light bulbs that don't flicker and, you know, buying noise canceling headphones and those types of things are, and, you know, having flexible workspaces and the ability for people, not just, you know, this is everyone to be able to pick up their laptop and go to a different room by themselves, having basically some kind of flex offices so that if you need to get away, whether it's to focus or because you're feeling overwhelmed, who cares why, that there's somewhere for you to do that and you don't feel like you're going to spiral and have a panic attack or a meltdown or a shutdown or, you know, freak out generally. Um, and so I think a lot of the things I've learned personally, you know, running, running a company that's so focused on autism, as well as having, you know, more and more people around me all the time who are, is the things we're doing to accommodate those employees and asking for constant feedback on are often things that can just help with the comfort and mental health of all of our employees and you know autism is a spectrum and so we're we're all probably somewhere on it a little bit and it's just a question of uh you know what do we cross the clinical threshold or not but um i i remember when we were doing some early testing with the xeno and alice robots at uh an autism treatment center here in dallas where we're based uh, there was a a teenage kid that um we were working with occasionally who was kind of doing some testing with us and he was very very verbose he loved to talk he just you know didn't know when to talk when to stop and didn't know uh how, how uh, close or far away to be from you when having a conversation. But one of his favorite things to ask every time we'd come in, he'd always ask me, how autistic are you feeling today? I would like and, to ask you about schools. Uh, if we're checking tech sites, we always see some kind of a, a tech revolution in schools, like a flipping classroom, remote learning, uh, mm -hmm. experiments with robotics. In your work, uh, 
how it's actually uh, difficult to reach schools to implement something like a social robotics. And if it's really difficult, what's the main challenge? It's more about budgets, lack of people who are able to use it in actual work or just like a bureaucracy or lack of knowledge and experience. Um, I think the answer is kind of all of the above, but I think what we've seen is, um, you know, for, for better or worse, uh, I mean, budget is always an issue when you're dealing with schools. That's just that. And with that comes some bureaucracy, getting through whatever their processes. And every school, school district, state have their own processes, and you just have to learn it. That's just the cost of doing business in that industry. And that's there's nothing about the technology or anything uh, unique. And, you know, sometimes you're frustrated, and there, sometimes things take longer than you want them to, and that's fine. You just that's just part of working with schools. But um, I think what we've seen is that uh, for kind of general education, there's always a lot of initiatives to push technology adoption forward, but I haven't seen as much of that with special education. And as a consequence, what we've seen is speaking pretty broadly and generally that a lot of times special education classrooms have kind of a minimal adoption of technology and so bring something like a robot in and these apps is a big ask and early when we were before we were as proven as we are and before we had the you know the independent research case studies published papers everything we have now there was a lot of skepticism and just like anything else you've got to find your early adopters and prove it out with them and you know, kind of push push forward. And, you know, if, if you've read the book, Crossing the Chasm, it's the same adoption cycle of you gain some momentum with your early adopters and you're selling well, and then you kind of, you peek out with that group and then you've got to figure out a whole new strategy to sell and get the message out and everything like that as you get into the kind of more normal user type band of population. And, um, you know, what we've seen is just very frankly, um, there's just, I think, a little more fear in with in special ed of adopting a te technology that won't work and being kind of embarrassed by it. Um, because, you know, someone has to account for it when it's a public institution. I think what we've done to kind of, you know, get past that is, I mean, we've done everything from, you know, free trials to giveaways early on and stuff like that. But really just we, we train well, we have so many, you know, happy, positive customers, both in terms of administrators, special ed directors, teachers, students, things like that, that it's easier to kind of show what we've done. And along the way, we've really improved the way we train and also just like any other product making sure it's as usable and intuitive as possible um and so i mean there's it's it's slower going in terms of adoption with with schools and especially within special education but again one of the i think things that this whole you know 
global pandemic is forcing is forcing a lot of these schools and a lot of these departments that have been slow to adopt they're now scrambling to catch up because they can't just leave their students behind and you know if they can't have their kids in the classroom and we have no idea what school is going to look like next year for kids it's going to be all over the place just depending where you are you know everything from remote to part-time remote, part-time in school, half-day, A-B schedules, who knows what else. And so we've, we've just got to make sure that um, these, these kids have the tools they need and the teachers have the tools they need. And that's really forcing um, schools to look at technology in areas where they haven't considered technology to be important. So it's accelerating. Um, I wish it, a global pandemic is not what it took to cause that acceleration because obviously there's a lot of other problems, but um, that's just my assessment of the reality right now from everything I'm seeing. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, you know, we're doing everything we can to make sure that, you know, there's continuity between whether they're learning remotely with our products or in person with our products, that their data follows them, that they have a consistent experience, that they're able to learn whether they're at home or at school, um, you know, because that's, that's the world we now live in. Uh, recently, um, I had a talk uh, with the influencer and technologist r related to nursing. And I would say nursing is a pretty similar to education in terms of how many technologies they try to implement uh, almost after almost absence of any kind of technology before. So just, uh, currently we try to deal with VR, AR, automation, personalization. And one of the main conclusion was that we need to reimagine uh, we hold occupations and professions so nurses is more like engineers or at least some kind of advanced users um, in your opinion how many years we need to improve and reimagine uh, educators and how it's difficult uh, to educate them and oh, what specific tools and some kind of a learning for them uh, do you use yeah I mean, education is, I mean, it's, it's going through a transformation right now. It has to, um, because the, you know, the, the traditional model of, you know, sage on a stage that's been the same, you know, for hundreds of years doesn't make as much sense when we have technology that allows for much, much faster, if not instantaneous feedback, which we know helps people learn faster, um, more individualized and personalized learning. And, you know, these are kind of buzzwords, I think, individualized learning, personalized learning, one-to-one, -one, you know, all of these types of things are, you know, there's good concepts behind them, but it, I think I've seen, and I'm now seeing a, a little bit of, of, not a backtracking, but a slowing down. There was a lot of excitement around all these new concepts and just everything from one-to-one -one devices, make sure every kid has a tablet or a laptop or whatever to, and then they did that. And then, it turned out that getting every kid an iPad or an Amazon Fire tablet or something like that isn't a magical 
anything that you have to make sure you know what you're going to do with it, how the teachers are going to use it, what you know, what the next step is. And so now I think we're we're seeing a little bit of a much more comprehensive thinking when we're implementing technologies to make sure that we know how we're going to use them, not just here's a cool new toy. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know that we're going to know what the answer is in terms of what works for years, but, you know, schools just have to become like every other type of modern organization where it's not, a, you, you can't have a 10-year te technology plan for a school anymore. That's insane. And I still see it. I've, I've seen 20-year technology plans that schools have put out. Imagine, just imagine that right now. Imagine running a company and saying, all right, we're going to put together a technology plan for the next decade. And you then had to take that to your board to the public market and show it to them. You'd be laughed off the stage. You'd be laughed out of your job, right? So right now, it's more about everyone's ability to adapt and to evaluate, you know, what what the next thing should be and implement it conscientiously to make sure you've, you're seeing benefit out of it and helping students learn more effectively and be prepared for the modern world, whatever that looks like when they graduate in 10 or 15 years. And I mean, that's it's an immensely challenging problem, right? And robots, I think, are part of that. I think robots like mine are part of that. You know, we've we've had a lot of discussions about future generations that are smaller and more personalized, that are everything from emotional support robots, just like some people have emotional support animals, to, you know, basically robotic tutors that are able to not take the place of the teacher, but highly supplement. And we have teachers that are using our, our robots experimentally and researchers who have put our robots in the classrooms as co-teachers, as assistant teachers, where, I mean, right, you know, this is happening, you know, this past school year where there are, you know, classrooms with five or six of our robots in a single classroom. And the teacher is working individually with one student at a time, supporting them on the things they need because she's able to really very quickly as a great teacher, because this is what teachers do so well, assess where this student needs help and take the time to work with them, during which time the other robots are in the classroom with small groups of kids teaching other things that this, in this case, that this teacher has programmed the robot to do, curriculum she's developed. And as she got deeper into it, able to get the robot kind of prepared to answer more questions. And then if a student working with a robot needs more help, they're able to raise their hand, get help from the teacher. But they're also able to ask their, um, you know, their friends questions and ask for support from in other ways. And I think that you know, one, one of the things um, that is important is that it's it's collaborative and that these are kind of, you know, co-teachers, co-bots, co basically, um, that are, are there to help. And it's not that they're doing everything, but they're there to assist and they're there to support and supplement. And that really allows 
the teachers to be more effective with the things that they're really good at um, in supporting their students. And I mean, I think you're going to see that with technology, both, you know, just applications as well as robots everywhere as, you know, as time progresses. But in the classroom, it it seems to work well. And, you know, there's nothing um, I think is more inspiring to me when I see a kid learning with our robots, whether it's autism stuff or our coding courses, raise their hand asking for help and they're looking to one of their peers for help and not the teacher because they know someone else, one of their friends can also teach them. And that helps both kids, right? I mean, for any of us who went through, you know, however much school we went through in our life, you know, one of the things that always helped me was when I got to a point where I could lead the study session and not just learn during like the study session, then I knew I'd be fine and I knew I'd do well on the test because if I could teach my friends how to do it, then I knew I actually knew it. Um, and so that's what we want to do. And the reality is, is you need kids to learn to be team players and to collaborate because things are too complex these days. There's too many varieties of systems and things you need to think about for there to be one person that does it all. And I think we need to teach that as early as possible in education. You know, no more, I mean, sure, you have to figure out ways how to do assessment, but I'm a big believer that competency, the real understanding of whatever you're trying to teach is far more important than a specific grade on a specific test. And, you know, if, if I go too much deeper, I mean, that's that's opening a whole a whole world of all of education and standardized testing and things like that. That's too much to talk about for a year, let alone in a podcast. Um, yeah. One of the things that I love, but at the same time make me sad uh, in inclusive tech that uh, it is a pretty challenging to be sustainable in this world. And for mm. instance, I try to keep in touch even these spin-offs from Harvard, MIT, and many of them are not able to play in the so-called Y Combinator game because we either put too narrow market or they're not able to bootstrap, or they need uh, tons of initial funding, or they're just not able um, to uh, understand how to use crowdfunding. So there are many issues. Uh, based on my exploration, uh, one of the ways is to be in bootstrap as much as possible, and after that, get some early adopters, and after that, yeah. jump to uh, venture capital. So what was uh, your struggle if you actually uh, faced the, this issue, and what is your recipe in terms of a product and market strategy to be in sustainable and long-term perspective? Yeah. Uh I mean, we there was a lot of struggle there's no this it's none of this has been easy it's been you know it's it's been really difficult and i think to your point um you know with things that are assistive technologies are supporting people with special needs whatever those needs are whether it's physical emotional intellectual whatever you by definition you've got a product for a much narrower audience than a broader consumer product right and you know sometimes you you see products and people ask why is that so expensive and it has to be and it's unfortunate and it's not that 
delivering the app or delivering the whatever is that much more expensive than you know downloading another app but it took people and it took time and they have to live to develop it right and so you have to just you have to figure out how you can price it where you're not gouging people but you're creating a sustainable company and you have to figure out how to get the message out to a much narrower group that's often harder to communicate and to to your point that then makes it much harder to go pitch a Y Combinator, a 500 startups, a launch, any of those types of uh, places and say, you know, I have this great product. It's going to help a lot of people. I have no idea if we're going to make money and our total addressable market size is this small, not this large. Um, and that makes it really tough. I had some really nice, I think, advantages in the beginning. I spun out of another company. I spun out of Hanson Robotics where I was, you know, the engineering director and had been able to do some early prototyping with them and had a lot of support um, in a really positive way, which reduced a lot of my initial startup costs. Um, and, you know, in exchange, they they have equity and, you know, Robokind. Um, we, we definitely bootstrapped and did as much friends and family type of raise early on and, um, you know, started, you know, part of the reason we did the Xeno and Alice robots early was I knew I could get those basically developed and at a point where we were making them mostly by hand still within about six, eight months. and that there was a market for university researchers and that we could generate some revenue and have something we could start testing our own development product, product theories, market, all of that with, even if we knew it was never going to be a production product because we knew those, those couldn't be production product. They weren't durable enough. They were too expensive to build. And, you know, we had to, we had to solve a lot of problems, but it at least gave us a trickle of revenue, not supporting by any means, but something we could point at when we started pitching, you know, some other groups. And I mean, for us, we, we managed to just struggle along and, you know, if you can't raise, but you can keep going, it just means you're going slower, frankly, than if you were able to go get a big amount of money. Um, but I kept doing pitch competitions. I ended up in a few accelerator programs um, like IBM Smart Camp uh, and got to go to a launch festival in 2017 where we were named like the best education company by uh, launch and Jason Calacanis. And that was incredible. But, you know, there wasn't any cash that came along with that. But after that, as we've raised our profile and things like that, we were able to raise and now we're private equity backed. And um, but I mean, it just that's one of the things as a founder that's so tough. And as a technical founder, you know, you, you build the best team you can and you need to make sure you have other people um, that you know can help on the business side but i mean i had to learn how to pitch just like everyone else i had to learn how to negotiate a term sheet i had to learn all this stuff and get raises done uh, while also still focusing on product and technology development and managing my teams and all of that and i mean in, in that respect it's it's just a uh, I think it's just a harder version of what everyone else is going to. And the thing that makes it harder 
is that when you're trying to help a narrower group of people that need more support, you just have a smaller market. And anytime you're addressing a niche, um, you it, it's just harder. Um, so, you know, my, my advice is probably the same as anyone else. You just have to be resilient. You have to persevere and you, you do, do everything you can to have positive customer feedback and good reviews and everything else very, as early as possible. And, you know, I will also say in the 10 years or I guess nine plus years since we started Robokind, we started in 2011. Um, you know, there's been a lot, there's been a much, there's been kind of the evolution of um, impact investment funds and things like that, which it's still not easy. You still have to prove a thesis. It's just they have different metrics that aren't as heavily growth focused as if you're approaching a Y Combinator or, you know, an Andreessen Horowitz or any of those, depending what level of funding you're trying to get to. So that's, that's, I think, what it comes down to is you just have to search intelligently for the right fit of investor. I also would love to ask you about how do you see the current state of the market of inclusive technology? Uh, because currently it's become very diverse. On one hand, we have a social robotics, we have a smart glasses, we have a platforms like Ultranos, we just get funding uh, that uh, help to uh, people with autism find a job in tech companies. Um, mm -hmm. Since you mentioned that you're more like a learning company, not even robotics or hardware developer, do you consider them like a, a future competitors, or, or just or alias, or just some kind of a, a companies from your market that help you to get more information, and you you don't really care about them? I I think allies for a lot of them. I mean, it's there's not. Honestly, for the most part, there's not enough players in the space to fulfill the needs that exist currently. So I'm always looking for partnerships. I'm always looking for ways, how can I use someone else's product to enhance our product? How do I use their data? How do we build a way for you know things to work together and everyone to benefit, especially our end users and our end customers? But I mean, all, all these technologies are things that enhance. And, you know, as I look towards the future, um, as I look towards um, just all of these different, uh, you know, available technologies, I'm constantly thinking, how can we incorporate that? You know, what does their data look like? Can we partner with them? Will our data help them and vice versa? Not not in terms of from a business standpoint, but in terms of a the things we can do to enhance the way we help people and the enhance the way people learn, right? And so a lot of times for us, that's been partnerships with universities and research projects um, where we're, you know, like we, we participated in a multi-year um, European Union funded project called D Enigma that was autism funded. It was across nine universities. They were using our robots. They were using outside cameras, mocap stuff, virtual reality, everything else to create an ecosystem that could really take, you know, 
help in a more holistic way. And so those are the types of things I'm always interested in. In terms of just broader accessibility, there's a lot of stuff that just makes these tools easier. I mean, everything from very simplistically, and you know, oh, and this is an oversimplification, but I mean, Unreal game engine and Unity game engines. Now, if you if you build your games right, have default settings that people can turn on if you enable them to make it easier for people who are colorblind to play your games, right? And there are tools and plugins that even make it possible for people with low vision or no vision to play certain types of games that you never would have dreamed possible in the past. And all of those, as people are more conscientious of it, and as these tools become more standard, you, there's less that I have to do in terms of creating some of these portions of tools. It's using them, knowing they exist, and building on them to make them better and enhance them. And, you know, everything from just simple things to make sure that all of our, you know, images and other things in our uh, iPad apps are properly alt tagged out so that screen readers can read descriptions of what an image is if we're working with a kid that's autistic and has low vision um, and you know we're working on adding you know things like video descriptions include and subtitles and stuff to videos we put out and so it's just you just have to decide you're going to do it it takes extra work and uh, but the tools get easier and easier and easier all the time. You know, we don't really have to transcribe uh, videos anymore to make subtitles. You throw them up on YouTube and you go and export the subtitle file that gets generated and you make a few minor corrections and that's it. And it used to be you had to pay someone several hundred dollars a video to sit there and transcribe and type, right? So. Um, yeah, it's we're we're all moving in the same direction, and for companies whose goals are to really help people um, and help people with special needs, um, I, I don't view any of them as competitors. I view them as hopefully allies, and hopefully someone that, if it's appropriate, we can eventually partner in one way or another. And finally, uh, since you mentioned that with space uh, it's still pretty empty, it's in, in not filled enough, and re, re, uh, enough place for uh, new players, more investments, uh, more involvement. Um, on one hand, how do you see uh, the further development of this market and new tendencies? And second, what would you say to VCs? Uh, and people who would love to participate or instill afraid or not ready or don't understand it or are looking for a big, more numbers or bigger numbers. Uh, so what would you say to them in order to motivate finally to participate in this movement in ecosystem? Um, I, th I think that there's a big opportunity to still make good money and a lot of money, frankly, while providing benefit to people and helping people. I mean, the reality is, is if you look at what's spent on autism, I mean, not just in education, but across all kind of verticals that include autism, uh, UC Davis, uh, UC California Davis School, uh, two or three years ago, put out a report um, saying that in the U.S., all, like all factors, there was about uh, 200 billion with a B, 
being spent a year on autism and that the expectation was with the increase in autism, increase in services, is that by 2025, that would go to somewhere between half a trillion and $1.1 trillion a year. Um, it's a huge market. And that's just in the U.S., that assessment they did. It's a huge freaking market. That would make it a higher spend, uh, you know, kind of condition. I don't like using that word, but to kind of make it similar than diabetes, than heart disease, it would make it basically the most expensive kind of medically diagnosed condition um, in, in the United States. And so... There's huge opportunity, and that's that's one that's one thing that affects you know probably somewhere in the vicinity of you know two two percent of people you know, to some degree, um, and there's all these other there's all these other um, things out there that you can go after and attack, and there's a lot of crossover. I mean, the reality is is autism has been our focus, but because we're in special education classrooms, we've seen and we're starting to work with researchers to get better supporting evidence, benefit uh, for students working with our program who have Down syndrome, who have traumatic brain injuries, who have other general social and emotional uh, differences and deficits and things like that and all kinds of other stuff. Um, and so, you know, the, the market is broad and often your technology, whatever you're creating, even if you're focusing on autism as my example, has much broader potential application. And as a small company and as a startup, you focus on that one thing and you make sure that you're putting yourself in places where you can figure out and learn what else you can do. I mean, the reality is, is our robots can be used for general education, which we're now doing. We're doing, we have a computer science curriculum, as I mentioned, and we're teaching kids to code. Um, we've worked with universities in the past on some elder care, Alzheimer's and dementia applications, and at some point wanna revisit uh, that research and how to turn it into real product. I mean, you know, the, the robot in our case is a platform and there's a ton you can do with it. There's consumer things we could do with our robots as well um, that, you know, I'm less interested in just because of what my mission is and what our mission is. But I mean, there's so much you can do with these platforms. And I think that's true of, you know, most other technologies I've seen. And the question is, is are you able to acknowledge that and see it or watch when your customers start using it in ways you didn't intend that are really positive? And so, you know, there's there's a ton of money. Venture should be spending more time looking at education, looking at special needs, because there's a lot of money spent in a lot of different ways, everything from consumer to public to insurance and stuff like that. And it's a little slower than maybe some traditional funds time horizons are in terms of uh, getting there. But if you can stretch your time horizon a little bit from that, you know, call it three to five year to maybe five to seven, then you can get there and the companies you invest in will get there, um, you know, with, with the right, if it's the right person, obviously, and with the right support. So that's that's kind of where I would leave that. 
it sounds great. Thank you so much for your time. I believe it was an amazing talk and I continue to keep in touch with your work. I, I'm always trying to keep in touch with anything related to inclusion, inclusive ecosystem. There are so many work we should uh, should be done uh, from both venture capital, technology, policymaking perspective. Thank you so much again for your time. Stay safe, stay healthy and have a beautiful day. Thank you, Ian. It was great talking to you. Sure. Bye.